0: well good morning it is so good to be back especially after last week and not feeling great is not great (laughs) i hardly ever get sick but it seems like when i do it just uh, piles on so my thanks to dr hannah for jumping in at the last minute and actually, you probably got the better end of the deal. As I was thinking about it, it's sort of like expecting to go hear the Apostle Peter, and Jesus shows up. <laughs> it's like, that's, not, that's not a bad, not a bad deal. But Kathy and I had a really good uh, vacation. It was really uh, beautiful. We took a cruise around the British Isles. So we went to... London and then basically circled you know the big island of uh, England and Scotland and got to see um, England and Scotland and Ireland also went to Belgium and uh, one little spot there and then went to France and got to see Normandy had never been to the beaches of Normandy and seen uh, the the D-Day landing spot and it was of course very moving and uh, makes you feel very patriotic and very grateful for those who uh, literally sacrifice their lives for the freedom that we, do, that we enjoy right now. So it was really a blessing to be able to go, and a blessing that uh, we didn't catch <clears throat> COVID until like the very end of it. I tell you what, cruise ships are great, but they are like floating germ pools, <laughs> and you are sort of stuck there, but we, we avoided it. But Somebody in our group got it, and uh, you know, it, COVID is the love that keeps on giving, <laughs> But anyway, I'm, I feel uh, back to normal. Kathy's still working her way back up, and so she's uh, taking a break today. But anyway, uh, thanks for your prayers. It's really good to be back. And I need to say a big amen to what Dennis and Sharon shared about Israel. You know, Israel is um, a bit of a quandary for us here as Americans, especially as American Christians, because we have great Uh, emotional connection to them because of our because of the Bible and it's tempting sometimes for us to equate biblical Israel with modern Israel in the sense of it's a one-to-one relationship and politically at least technically on paper America is still an ally to Israel and so we have that affiliation and affinity as well and so there's a lot of mixed emotions that go with it and not only that When all we have of what's going on over there is the news, we are a bit disadvantaged because, let me ask you, when is a time that the news is not biased? When can we listen to the news and hear it in a way that we think, you know what, that is 100% accurate. And so when we we read what they have to say about Israel and about uh, all that's going on there, it often gives the impression that the whole place is an out-and-out war zone. And it's just not the case. I mean, Dennis and Sharon shared this morning, they feel safe that it was a, uh, uh, that the, the lockdown that basically they, they went through. I understand that. I've seen that. And it is, uh, it is a cautionary move that, that was taken, and wisely so, by Israel. But anyway, I'm just saying... You know, give it another few days or even another week before we really see what's happening before you decide, you know, that, that uh, Israel is just this war zone. Um, it's, it's really a challenge, too, because when we see that people have died, we tend to equate one part of the place as the whole place. And I've been over there many, many times when I would look at the news and would see, wow, I didn't know that was going on because we never experienced anything all throughout the trip or all throughout the day except what we were hearing from panicked people back here in the United States as well as uh, what we would see on the news. So most of the the, um, the tension and the violence are in certain areas. Like Dennis said, it's primarily in Gaza. That's primarily where the problem is. And if you typically know where those places are, then those are the places that, that you don't go to. And even here, like there are places in Dallas that most of us would not go. We know those places. We don't go to those places, and yet we can go to Dallas all the time, and it's just fine. Now, Walmart, on the other hand, you never know. (laughs) In fact, I had a friend of mine from China. I had a friend of mine from China who they lived in China, and they were talking about coming to seminary here in Dallas, and the wife of this uh, man who was going to come over to seminary said, I don't want to go to America and to seminary. I said, why not? Because our children will be shot in school. That was their perception of the United States. Why? Because that's what the news reported, and that's all they reported. And yet you and I know, as tragic as it seems to be more and more, that by and large our kids can still go to school, and it's okay. Anyway, all that is just to say just... Hang tight on the judgment of how things are going in Israel until you really hear it from the people uh, with boots on the ground, like Dennis and Sharon. What they shared this morning was very helpful. I uh, almost ate a cockroach this week (laughs) by way of transition. It was, I didn't mean to, but... Let, let me let me add that I didn't mean to to almost eat a cockroach, but we had bought some uh, you know a meal from a place, and I won't tell you the place. But we we bought a meal from a place that we've been going to for you know more than twenty years, probably twenty five years, without incident. And we get home, we get the beans out, and you know, and I dump my beans on my plate, and I and they weren't really you know, warm enough yet, which is sort of sick when you think about it because there's only way to, one way to know that they weren't warm enough yet. And I put them in the microwave and warm them up and so we sit down, we pray, and I literally had my spoon in the beans and they were going to my mouth and I pulled it back because, you know, beans are generally brown but there was something black in it. And it caused me to pause. And I pulled it down and I thought, well, it's probably just a black bean. But this black bean had legs. (laughs) Which reminded me of a statistic that is horribly true. The average, according to the USDA, the average person accidentally eats one pound of bugs per year. Average person. That includes you, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara has eaten a pound of bugs this year, and we don't know it. Of course, it's, you know, it's little pieces here and there that we never know we're eating, which is horrible, but that's just the reality. But I began to think about the spiritual life, <laughs> believe it or not, after almost eating this roach. I began to think about the spiritual life and how what the world feeds us each day is not what it promises. We think we're buying a bowl of beans, not a bowl of bugs. But the world gives us the bowl of bugs. And and we are wise to examine it before we just assume it's okay. When the world gives us um, what we think it's giving us, we have to examine it. Because we need to feed our mind truth rather than the lies that we um, often consume. I don't know about you, but sometimes I am literally amazed at the chasm between my quiet time with God in the morning and the rest of my day. To spend time with the Lord through the Word, through prayer, through worship, through confession, through all of the disciplines that our one-on-one relationship with God, and then you stand up after feeling fantastic, and then you're fed lies all throughout the rest of the day. Um, there seems such a chasm between the quiet time and the rest of our time. And I think part of the reason is because the chasm is there is because we often define our, the health of our spiritual life by our emotions if i feel good if i have a peace which is sort of a evangelical you know subjective way of saying that my spiritual life is determined by my emotions or the the direction that god wants me to go in life is somehow determined by how i feel as opposed to what god's word says it is very subtle emotions are a great gift from god but they're never intended to serve as our guide and are certainly never intended to be a barometer of our spiritual health. We can feel one thing, but we can believe something else entirely. The problem, of course, is that our actions often follow how we feel, not uh, what we know. I want that bag of potato chips. I feel that I need that bag of potato chips, even though I know that I don't need that bag of potato chips. How do we close that gap? The, rene- the renewal of the mind basically boils down to reminders of what we know is true. And think about just these words renewal, to renew, to make something new again, to renew of the mind, and also the word remind. To remind yourself is to bring it back into our minds. The renewal of the mind is essential because the world feeds us bugs, and we need a renewal of the mind. And one of the most effective ways that I've discovered in my life and also, we see it in the scriptures, is to use memory triggers, memory triggers, things that cause you to think about things, things in the course of your daily life that in and of themselves may not necessarily be spiritual, but they cause you to think about spiritual things. And there are several examples that Paul gives in several places that I'd like us to look at this morning that give us a, uh, memory triggers that help renew the mind and remind us about spiritual truths. So, the first place we'll look is in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. Paul does this in several places. First we'll look at Philippians, then we'll look at Ephesians, then we'll look at the Corinthians. Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll begin. This week, I got up from reading the Bible and literally remembered something that uh, we talked about, I don't know, weeks back, something that I had actually shared with you and challenged you as an application and realized I hadn't done it. I got up, closed my Bible, and was, you know, five steps away from it, and I stopped and I thought, what did I read? And I couldn't remember. I had just gotten up. So I went back and I opened it up and glanced back through the passages with the intent of grabbing something to take with me for the rest of the day, as opposed to just reading and checking my box, slamming it shut, and going off eating bugs. What did I read? What can I meditate on through the day? Biblical meditation has nothing to do with the emptying of our minds. You know, the New Age gurus will tell us that the key to peace is to meditate or to empty our minds, which if you think about it, is not realistic because we're always thinking about something. Even when you're trying to think about nothing, you're thinking about something. You can't not think about something. Instead, godly meditation seeks not to empty our mind but to fill our mind with truth and then to renew our mind with that truth. Philippians 4, look at verse 8. And first of all, look at verse 8 at what it doesn't say. So I'm going to read verse 8 in a way that it it, it is not written. But go ahead and look at verse 8 and follow along. Whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is wrong, whatever is impure, whatever is ugly whatever is of ill repute, if there is anything negative and of anything worthy of criticism, dwell on these things. Of course, that's not what it says. But, you know, we don't have to be told to do that. We just do it. Which is why we have to be told what it says. Because our natural inclination is not to skew positive. Our natural inclination in the weakness of our fallen humanity, is to go negative, to assume the worst rather than to assume the best. That's why we're told here in verse 8, I'll read the real verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, good reputation, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And that word therefore, dwell, you might have a note in your margin, says ponder. Ponder these things. Ponder these things. That's quite a list. And it's not a list that comes to mind easily. You have to think about it. Whatever is true... That means we're thinking about what is true. Honorable, right, pure, lovely, good reputation, excellent, worthy of praise. That means we are looking to find these things. You know, in relationships and in most situations in life, you typically can find what you're looking for. I had a um, family member ask me, how our girls made it through college and still walk with God. And we talked a little bit, and I said, you know, it just boils down to the fact that you find what you're looking for. If you're looking to find a Christian community that encourages you in your walk with God, then you'll find it. If you're looking to not find that, then you'll not find it. You typically find what you're looking for. Now that doesn't mean that all of our that it's just, you know, simple cookie cutter answer. Obviously there are so many different situations, not only with our uh, with our kids, but also with ourselves. But my point is that you typically are going to find what you're looking for. If you are looking to find something right, you'll find something right. In your kids' actions, in your mates' words, in your family member who is not that, you know, easy to be around. You can find something good if you're looking. But if you're looking for the negative, you'll find it as well. Paul says, look for the good. Dwell on these things. Ponder these things. And then in the very next verse, he takes it a step further. Verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So it's not just pondering truth. It's practicing truth. And then the promise, the God of peace will be with you. And of course, we know this context. The verses just prior to this talk about not being anxious, but by prayer and petition and the, and the peace of God surpasses all comprehension. This is all the same context. But Paul is saying, in your striving to not be anxious, And in the context of prayer and giving God, praying to God about these things, make sure that you are looking and dwelling on good things and then practicing these good things. That takes effort. That takes effort. When I had my arm in my sling, I was noticing Mike, uh, where are you, Mike? Back there with your sling. There you are. He walked in and he's got his... Rotator cuff, you know, wound there for all of us to see. That's not an easy place to be. Um, I was there for six weeks in that thing, and then another, I don't know, six weeks without the little pillow, and then all of the, ugh, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> but I remember when I had my, my arm in the sling, and I was at the grocery store. That's the worst, because you can't use but one arm, and has anyone experienced a grocery store cart that steers straight. I mean, talk about a fallen world. You push and the, the thing goes this way, or the wheel, the wheel constantly shim, shimmers on you. So anyway, I was in there trying to navigate this thing with my sling on, and I got up to the, the checkout stand, and just in front of me was a mother with a, I don't know, like a two-year-old, three-year-old boy sitting in the little sit seat, you know, in the, in the cart. And he looked at me, this little boy looked at me, and he looked at my uh, uh, sling. And he goes, real loud, he goes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I said, you said it, kid. Uh Uh-oh. God's word says make a conscious effort to think about just the opposite. Naturally, we skew negative. Here we've got a three-year-old kid saying uh-oh. He, he didn't look and say, you know what, you're going to feel so much better after you, you're healed. He just saw the sling and said uh-oh. And we're that way. God says we've got to make a conscious effort to think about the opposite. And in this saying this, Paul doesn't mean, and obviously the Lord doesn't mean, that we take a sort of Pollyanna, head in the sand attitude, just think about the good things. Don't talk about the negative things. No, the negative things are there. And we've got a world full of negative things. But Paul says, don't dwell on them. Not that you can't talk about them. The epistles are full of negative things Paul talks about. But he says, don't dwell on them. Don't let that be what you're thinking about. When Kathy and I were in Scotland, I was at a uh, coffee shop getting a coffee. and They're in the local shop, and I just love listening to them talk. Yeah, Because they do the Scottish accent really well. (laughs) I mean, I told one guy, I said, you do it better than the movies. (laughs) But anyway, I was there asking this guy, and I I was kidding around with him, and I said, you can probably tell by my accent that I'm not from around here. And he looked at me and said, you're joking, lad. I thought you were my neighbor. And then I asked him, can you tell me where Eric Little lived in Scotland? Because I don't know. And both he and the lady next to him both looked at each other and asked each other, who? <laughs> and I just wanted to drop my coffee. Eric Little. And then I got to thinking about it. Yeah, I guess that was 99 years ago. <laughs> Eric Little won the, the uh, gold medal in uh, 1924 the Olympics. But, I mean, Scotland's like prize athlete. When little died at an early age, all of Scotland mourned. And yet today, the baristas in this town didn't even know who he was, didn't even know his name, a national hero. If we don't choose to remember what's essential, we're going to forget it. When you feel the pull toward the other side of the Grand Canyon, It's time to meditate on truth again. You're in Philippians 3, uh, 4. Turn back to Philippians 3 and look at verse 1. This beautiful, simple verse. Paul writes in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. To write the same things again. You may remember when we were together the last time, or when I was with you the last time, we went through Acts chapter 16 when the Apostle Paul was at Philippi, and we talked about some of those, um, some of the events that occurred there in Acts 16 at Philippi. And now, the book of Philippians, he writes this from his first Roman imprisonment, and so he's writing back up about things that he's taught them many, many years prior to this. So when he says that it's no trouble for me to write the same things again. The book of Philippians is full of reminders, in other words. And Paul says, it's no trouble for me to tell you the same things over and over. And he says, it is a safeguard for you. I looked up that word, safeguard, in the original language. And it has the idea of, of uh, strapping something on all sides so that it doesn't totter. I think about those huge towers You know, the huge towers that just stand, looks like a mile high, and then they've got these wires that come down, um, looks like a, a mile as well, that keep the tower straight. That's the idea of the safeguard. To write the same things again is a safeguard. It keeps you straight up. It keeps you from tottering, to have reminders of the same truths over and over. This is why we read our Bible repeatedly. It's not just once. You know, most classic novels, you know, War and Peace or you know, the Brothers Karamazov, all these old books, it's like you read them once and you think, you know, once was enough. Great book, but I'm done. I've read War and Peace. Great. But you don't say that about the Bible, do you? At least as Christians, we don't. The Bible is not a meal that you eat one time. It is the grocery store you go to repeatedly. Repeatedly to get your food. Paul says, this is how it's supposed to be. Verse 1 we just read, and then if you look down now at verse 7, we get to the first of these memory triggers. And the, um, the context prior to this, which we're skipping, is Paul talking about his magnificent background in Judaism, how he had basically climbed the ladder and he was at the top of the ladder Then he says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul says all the credentials that the world calls the best, and Paul listed them. From a Jewish perspective, what Paul lists here in verses 3 through 5, or verse 6, this is what every Jew would have wanted on their resume. Paul says, I consider all of that, I count it all rubbish. Does anybody else have a different translation other than rubbish? Garbage? Okay, anything else? Worthless. Okay, that's really tame. Anything else? Dung! Good old King James. (laughs) King James actually comes the closest of all of those translations. Most of the time, we get a very tame translation of this word. It means excrement. And it doesn't just mean excrement. It means... A bad word for excrement. It is a vulgar term in the Greek, and I won't translate it into English because, you know, you can translate it on your own. But think of a vulgar word for excrement, and you've got Paul's original word here. He says, I consider it all, beep, in view of knowing Christ. He doesn't mean that all of these things have no value. I mean, he would pull out his Roman citizenship card many times and present it for a purpose. But he says the best that the world has to offer compared to knowing Christ is done. That's the point. And the, the reason that this is a, a, a memory trigger is because, well, this is something we do every day. And so you've got this repetition in your mind in the experience of just being a human being with a body that functions to remind us that our knowing Jesus Christ is so far more valuable than the best the world has to offer. If you go to Philippi today, there are actually some public toilets there, and this is a great place to read this, this verse. <laughs> I kid you not, <laughs> when I am night tours go there, that's what we read. And uh, there actually, there used to be a place where you could go down, you could all sit around on the toilets. There's big community toilets, you could just all sit there together, pull out some reading material, and read this verse. But it is a great memory trigger. And I know this may seem a little gross in application, but again, this is something we do every day. And it is worthy of thinking about that the best the world has to offer is just what we flush compared to knowing Jesus Christ. It's a helpful memory trigger. All right, let's move on because that one is... Oh, but I've got a, a bath, bathroom story. Can we have bathroom humor in here as long as it's clean? <laughs> Too late. <laughs> well, I was overseas, and overseas is the worst place for bathrooms because you're not always sure which one you're walking in. I didn't realize, but I walked into the wrong bathroom one day and walked in there and was about to go to this stall when the stall door opens and a woman comes out and we're standing there face to face. (laughs) And it seemed like about 10 seconds is probably only about one. But uh, anyway, I just said, sorry. And so she walked out and then I sort of sneaked out and looked And indeed, the sign wasn't very clear, but I was in the wrong bathroom. Okay, so moving on. Look at Acts chapter 16. I'm sorry, 18 now. Acts chapter 18. At another memory trigger. This is Paul's second missionary journey. And on the second journey, he got to... Take the gospel to Europe for the very first time. And we saw that a couple of chapters earlier in Acts 16. Here in Acts 18, he has made his way down the, uh, the coast of Achaia, down to uh, what we think of as modern Greece. And at the southern edge of modern Greece was Athens. And if you go a little west from there, you have Corinth. And so Paul finds himself at Corinth now in chapter 18. And we won't read the first uh, 10 verses there, but he basically just talks about his normal, what he would do. He would go, he would teach, and he would uh, share the word of God. And then we read in verse 11, verse 11, He settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it'd be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, but Gilea was not concerned about any of these things." Now again, if we were to go to Corinth today, we'd see a lot of uh, very interesting ruins, and one of which is in the marketplace. They found the marketplace where it is, where it's called the Agora. There is this judgment seat that is mentioned three times in verse 12, verse 16, verse 17. A judgment seat. The judgment seat, the original word is Bema, or sometimes pronounced Bema. It's just like a raised platform. This platform here is raised, but not really raised. It's only like about a foot. But the Bema at Corinth was probably a good, you know, seven, eight feet tall. And it put you way up above, and it was a place where you would give speeches, or in this case, this proconsul, Galio, was there to basically uh, hold. A public hearing and they brought Paul there in front of this raised judgment seat. It was a place of judgment and Corinth had one. In fact, most places have one. I've seen the remnants of one at a number of uh, ancient places throughout the lands of the Bible, but no doubt Corinth is uh, the most memorable. And so this event happened and obviously the Corinthians would have remembered this event in the life of Paul. We won't necessarily go through all the details here except to read the fact that it happened. So keep your finger or keep a place here in Acts 18, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, Actually, let's make it 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Getting ahead of myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So Paul, writing to the Corinthians on his third missionary journey, uh, looks back and remembers this event we just read in Acts 18 on his second missionary journey. And he uses the memory trigger of this judgment seat that they had all walked by, that they were all familiar with. They saw it every time they went to the market. And he uses this for a spiritual lesson. Um, 2 Corinthians Five look down at verse. Um, yeah, let's see. somewhere. Ten is That's a good place. Let's actually look look at nine. Thank you. Verse nine. Paul says, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning whether you're in or out of the body, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul uses this exact same word, judgment seat, writing to the Corinthians. And when he says we must all appear before the judgment seat, they would have thought, we remember Paul stood on the judgment seat here in Corinth. But he says, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So now he's using this judgment seat that they saw all the time to let them know of a future coming judgment seat. And then it says, so that we may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. What does that mean? I thought I wasn't going to be held accountable for all my bad. That's kind of why I placed my faith in Christ. So why is, what's this judgment seat of Christ? Well, you're right. The, the, um, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment for heaven and hell. That was taken care of on the cross. When we placed our faith in Jesus, we are placing our faith that he died on the cross in our place, and his resurrection shows, proves that our sins are paid for. This judgment seat is a judgment just of rewards. It's just a judgment of rewards. That's all it is. And this is 2 Corinthians, which obviously comes after 1 Corinthians. So turn back to 1 Corinthians. He would have assumed they've read this before they read what we just read. But we started there just to see the words connect that there is a judgment seat in Corinth, and Paul uses that as a memory trigger. So that every time they walk by the judgment seat in the market, every time they go to get bread or milk or whatever, wherever they're going, they're going to see this raised platform and they're going to remember what Paul wrote to them. It's a memory trigger that causes them to think about it. In 1 Corinthians 3, did I say that? What did I say? Four. Well, you're close. Go, go back one chapter and look at 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, that each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. So he's using a, a house, the building of a house, and the building materials that are used in that process to, sh- to give an illustration. And he talks about the quality. Of course, the foundation, you could think of the, the concrete slab foundation is Jesus Christ. It's solid. It's immovable. Nothing can change it. In fact, when you look at neighborhoods that have had um, twisters go through, you see nothing left but the foundation. It's amazing. Paul says, we build now on this foundation, but you've got to be careful how you build, he says, verse 10. And then he gives example of different kinds of building materials. There's wood, there's hay, there's straw, there's precious stones, there's silver, there's gold. And when you light a match to these different things, some of these things burn up, like the wood, hay, and straw. Some of the things remain, like the things which can't be burned. Now, don't let the fire throw you. That is just part of the metaphor. The the thoroughness of fire on a house is just a metaphor for the thoroughness of the judgment which Jesus will give us at our works. Depending on how we have built or how we have lived our Christian life, how we have worked in the kingdom of God as it were, building the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God, the quality of that work will be judged. And if the motive, if we're told, how we build, (coughs) if the motive of that is good, then we will receive a reward. Verse 14 tells us this. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So notice the, the work is what is burned up, not the person. The the work is what burns up, that's what's judged. And it's wonderful that Paul uses this particular word here in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again, it says, the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, I know we talked about this before, but it's no trouble for me to say the same things to you again. It's a safeguard. Remember, there's a couple of different words for tests, and it's all in the goal. Like this particular word is the original word that is a test for approval. The purpose of doing this test is so that you pass. You remember teachers that gave you tests like that? It's like they basically said, look, just take the test, you're gonna pass. In other words, they're, they're gonna make it work for you. And then there are those other teachers. It's like, go ahead, take this test, I dare you. <laughs> and you know, you know you're, you failed before you've even started. There's two different words for test. The word for test that's used here is the word that is a test for approval. The goal of this test that Jesus will do, the goal of the test is to find something to approve. In fact, in a sense, the whole reason that he tests it to get rid of the stuff that you didn't do with a good motive is to get to the stuff that you did with a good motive so that he can reward that. The goal of the judgment is approval, not condemnation. That is so important for us to remember. Now, there is another word for test, and that is a a word that you test to show weakness. In fact, this word sometimes is even translated tempt. And every single time we're talking about the devil testing us, it's that word. So Satan tests us so that we'll fail every time. God tests us that we may succeed. It's a beautiful contrast. Our English doesn't always reflect it, which is why I uh, emphasize it here for you. And so when Paul tells them, hey, when you go to the market, when you walk by the Bama seat, when you walk by the judgment seat, remember, One day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. It was a memory trigger in their minds to remember to live with a quality life. And by the way, everyone will get some reward. Um, 1 Corinthians 4 says, verse 4, Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then, look at these words, each man's praise will come to him from God. Everybody gets rewarded for something. Will come. Each man's praise will come. That is a promise right there in the word of God. You may not think you've done a lot, but you will be surprised one day at the judgment seat of Christ as all the other stuff burns away, as it were, and Jesus says, you don't even remember you did this, but you're about to get a reward for it. That's going to be a great day. All right, one more memory trigger, if you would. Turn back to Acts 18, where you kept your place marked. And let's continue. We stopped at verse 17, look at verse 18, Acts 18:18 18, 18 says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a longer time, He did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul ends this second missionary journey by leaving uh, Corinth, and he and Priscilla and Aquila leave Corinth and they go to Ephesus. And it says that he leaves them there, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and they, we assume, presumably took up their. A vocation of making tents, Ephesus also had an agora and a vema, judgment seat. But what's significant about this as a memory trigger is the agora. The agora is just a Greek word that means marketplace. For us, we could think of it as the shopping mall is the agora. In fact, sometimes I've even seen in Greece today, they call their shopping areas the agora because it's where you'd go to shop. And in, um, in, this, in these verses, we have uh, told that Paul left Ephesus and he says, if God wills, I'll come back. And we won't read chapter 19, but that is exactly what Paul did in the third missionary journey. Most of it was spent at Ephesus. And chapter 19 goes through the, the really exciting events, actually, that occurred while Paul was there. But then Paul writes back to the Ephesians, again from his first Roman imprisonment, so Turn to Ephesians, and this is the last time you'll have to turn, in case you're wondering. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The shopping mall is a part of life for us. The Agora was a part of life for the Ephesians. And so Paul uses this as a memory trigger to remind them of something in the Christian life. Ephesians 5, look at verse 15. Ephesians 5, 15. Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, we don't see it here in the English um, in verse 16, it says, "Making the most of your time." You may have a marginal reading that says, "Redeeming the time," which gets a little closer to the original, because the word "redeem" is a financial term. To redeem something is basically to purchase something. But the original word, therefore, "redeem," redeem the time, or making the most of your time, is the Greek word exagorazo ex agorazo. You hear the word agora in there? ex agorazo. And the X means out. So agora is the idea of buying something. The X means to buy it out. It's like if you've got a, um, a 99% coupon from Kohl's. You, know, you, go to, you go to Kohl's, and I mean the shelves would just be emptied because you would buy it out. You would make the most of that, which is why it's translated this way, making the most of your time. That is, you are fully redeeming your time. And so Paul says, when you go to the agora, think about not just buying your milk, but how you're spending your life. Let the agora be a memory trigger to buy out your time. When you go to the shopping mall, from our perspective, you could think of it, let that be a reminder not just to buy something, but to spend your time making the most of it in your life. And then we're told why, because the days are evil. We have to be intentional about how we spend our life because the days are evil. The world, as we've said, wants to feed us bugs. God wants us to meditate on truth, to live truth. And to make the most of your time means that you are um, you're thinking about it. In fact, the word here for time doesn't mean a lifetime. It means a season of life, a short time, which is why it's sometimes translated making the most of every opportunity. In fact, I think in the parallel passage in Colossians, it may be translated that way, that you are not just buying the time, you are buying this time right now. Wherever you are in your season of life right now, you are making the most of this time. And for most of us, that's a bit of a challenge because, you know, we tend to think not of the season that we're in, but in the seasons that we weren't in, that we're not in. You know, when so-and-so happens in the future, when something happens financially and I finally get this windfall, then I'll be able to be effective for Jesus Christ. Or when so-and-so finally dies, when so-and-so finally gets their act together, when, when I leave this church and go to another church that has better opportunities, when fill in the blank, The reality is, Paul says, you don't be looking for that next season. What season are you in right now? Make the most of that. Buy it out, because it'll never come back. We can think of that easily with regard to our our children. When we have kids, you remember this, we think, how long until they leave? (laughs) And then they leave, and there's this euphoria of the empty nest, until you realize Our kids aren't here anymore. And then you you look back and you, you wish you'd made more use of the time back then. And every season of life is like that. Have you noticed? When you're single, you want to be married. When you're married, you want to have kids. When you're kids, you want to be empty nesters. And then, you know, you're looking forward to retirement. When retirement is like, what do I do with my time? You're always looking at the season that you're not in. Paul says, make the most of where you are right now. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So Paul uses these memory triggers. He uses the latrine at Philippians, at Philippi. He uses the judgment seat at Corinth. He uses the shopping mall at Ephesus. Each of these was to be a memory trigger for them as they experienced this, not just to think latrine, bama seat, shopping mall, but to think spiritual life. That something that isn't spiritual all of a sudden now makes you think of something spiritual. We can do that, can't we? Um, do you have things like that around your house? Maybe you've got like a plaque on the wall that has a verse. After a while, that's just a plaque on the wall. It's just part of the wall. You could move it. You could hang it upside down. You can hang it sideways. You could do something that makes you look at it in a brand new way and gives you the memory trigger of what it's all about. And I've written a couple of ideas down. You could maybe just grab one of these. But think about what you can do, a physical reminder, to act as a memory trigger of a spiritual truth in your life. First of all, you could set a recurring calendar notification on your calendar, you know, that pops up like a meeting. And you could have a verse there, or you could have a a statement there, you know, like think good thoughts or whatever you want to say to remind you of truth. Um, Or you could use your your wristwatch, you know, the hourly beep. We don't hear that as much anymore. And frankly, I'm grateful because they used to pop up all the time. But if you think about that beep or anything else that you can use your smartwatch or watch or phone for, to remind you to praise God at the top of every hour, just to pray a short prayer. You'd be praying every hour all throughout the day, and have this mindset and habit of prayer. Or, um, if your your computer has a a home screen, and I know our phones have those things where you can set, uh, I've got my grandson on my home screen, I probably won't change that, but if you wanted to change your home screen to have like a, a verse or something there that causes you to think about God. Or, the tried and true three by five card works well. You can write a verse on it, write a scriptural truth, and put it in a place that is conspicuous, your dashboard of your car, your mirror. And so I'm just suggesting maybe some ideas for you to take what Paul did to use the day-in, day-out experience of shopping malls, you know, restrooms, etc., and change those mundane things and make them spiritual reminders. Because otherwise, otherwise... Uh, we will easily slide over and forget God. Listen to Moses' words. Just listen, don't turn. But this is Deuteronomy six, verse twelve. Short verse, but very powerful. Moses said, Watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. Deuteronomy six twelve. Watch yourself lest you forget the Lord. I read a headline this week that I thought, I've got to read that article. The headline said this, San Antonio man hurt after playing chicken with oncoming train. For some reason, he thought that was a good idea. Yes, he was hurt. (laughs) He wasn't killed, but he was hurt. Playing chicken with an oncoming train. You know, we can get some crazy ideas in our life. And the, the world will sell us these crazy ideas as the way to freedom. So crazy that we'd even play chicken with a train. Moses told God's people that the culture around them served as a serious distraction from their spiritual lives. And it's no different from us today. Watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's practical applications in the epistles, for Luke recording Paul's experiences in the book of Acts. And as we look at these and blend them together, we see how Paul used these everyday uh, experiences to be more than that, to be reminders of spiritual truths. So as we go through our day and the applications of this lesson are innumerable as we think about the objects in our home and uh, that can be so much more than just objects but they can be reminders memory triggers of spiritual truths so would you give us creative thoughts and allow us to uh, do more with our lives than simply read the bible slam it shut and walk away forgetting what we've read let us use these memory triggers that cause our minds to be renewed to be reminded that we might walk through christ faithfully and proclaim his name to a world that desperately needs it and it's in his name we pray amen thank you wayne good to have you back until then may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you may the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace amen